Well, welcome to another episode of AP's Profiles in Christian Living. My name is Mark Powell, and my special guest with me today is Mr. Ian Headley. At Profiles in Christian Living, we try to explore the untold story of a lot of anonymous people that may not be famous, may not have a public profile, but have a fascinating story on how they came to Christ. Indeed, everybody has a fascinating story in that regard. But Ian, yours is a particularly interesting one uh, because you came from a normal sort of suburban family, but then got involved in basically like a hippie commune slash cult. Tell us the story in your own words. Well, I was I was born in Melbourne in a sort of an outer suburban area and um, mum and dad, I had one sister, had a mother and father obviously, and uh, my dad was a, a builder and we lived in a very suburban street. It was quite a friendly street, had a lot of good, good neighbours. This is, I was born in 1957 so uh, I lived the first 10 years of my life in that street in Surrey Hills in Melbourne. Mostly white Anglo-Saxon sort of people. Uh, was heading towards the 1960s. So things were buoyant after the Second World War. My dad was very busy. He didn't need to be highly regulated as a tradesman. So he had a pretty prosperous, energetic beginning to his working career as a builder, developing his family. Life was very uh, rosy. And, okay. Uh, what happened then? Well, um, got to 10, 10 years old, and my dad was sort of building different things. And so we were progressing up, upwardly mobile, I guess, to some extent from a sort of middle class point of view. And we, he built another house and we moved out uh, of that suburb towards Templestowe, and, which was getting more rural uh, towards the Yarra River. And um, so... We moved out there. Um, my mum, at some point that I can't remember when, had breast cancer and she always had one breast. As far as I knew as a child, it didn't, I didn't think that was abnormal. And, um, but later on, she got cancer again, so probably in about 1971. I was now at high school um, in Baldwin area and uh, we lived out at Templestowe. My mum did get sick occasionally and, you know, she had headaches and things like that and we weren't very aware. I was uh, probably 14 at the, at the time and uh, my mum had to go to hospital. There was always hope that she'd get better but I remember Dad driving us home from the hospital with my sister and, and myself in the back and uh, he sort of just said as we're driving along, I don't think your mum's going to make it. And it was one of those double-take sort of moments, you know, how does, mm. how does that happen in normal yeah. life? I mean, everything was going well. You know, life was buoyant. My mum played tennis. She had good friends um, and suddenly she's dying and she's not going to get better. So um, that really threw a spanner in, in the works and we, um, we went into this sort of flurry of activity to try and cure my mum. My dad and my mum, I guess, agreed that um, they would try and a health cure so they were getting these big white pills from Switzerland and she was living on uh, fruit juice fasts and um, which was probably just incredibly brutal for someone who's lived a, you know, meat and three veg sort of existence to suddenly be thrown into full tilt fasting on fruit juice and stuff. So, I mean, her body was going through all this stuff as well as dealing with uh, now stomach and liver cancer. So um, she died in... Um, August, I think it was, 1972. 
that would have made me, what, not quite 15. Yeah, just before mm-hmm. I was 15. And uh, my sister was two years older. I remember, I, for some reason, I stayed at home. My mum was at home and I actually watched my mum pass away, which was pretty severe. Mm-hmm. And uh, I took her last breath and I remember, uh, you know, crying with my dad and it basically suddenly our... I remember going to school the next day, Dad sort of said, right, you know, keep things going. And I think he thought, I've just got to keep the routine going. So I went back to school and I remember one of the kids said, "Uh, why don't you take a day off school? And it just struck me that people just don't know how to deal with death and and what to say in that context. Um, It was just like, you know, you've got a cold, why don't you stay home for the day? Um, And then... I remember sort of feeling like I was walking down the corridor and there's people everywhere and it, I was in this other world and I was in this emotional nightmare of my world falling apart and people didn't know what to say or where to look and I thought, what am I doing here at school? You know, I'm 14 years old. I, I was actually in about fourth form at that point, or year 10. I, I just couldn't see the point. I thought, I'm here learning stuff but this isn't telling me about the meaning of life and existence and, and what the heck I should be on this planet for. And that struck me pretty hard and uh, I felt um, devastated personally by that. And I guess we were living in a time when people were questioning in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, you know, Dylan had written songs like The Times Are Changing. Um, you know, you've got Decimal Currency emerging at mm-hmm. 1966. Uh, there's all sorts of turmoil in the world. People were starting to look to the east for answers, looking at a fairly dysfunctional Western world that's hell-bent on exploding itself with nuclear weapons. It seemed at the time that was the major concern that people were... Even Golf Whitlam, his big slogan in the 70s, wasn't it, where he came into power was, it's time. Yeah, that's right. Which picks up on the zeitgeist yeah. of yeah. the age. That's right, I think so. So did that then lead you... Into the into the how did you come then to a, a hippie commune if I can put it like yeah. that? Yeah, well, one of the friends at school who was a, a bit of a beatnik sort of a character himself, he uh, he came super enthusiastic to school. He said, "Oh, you know, you've got to meet this guy. He's a, he's a guru. He's sixteen years old. He's promised to bring peace to the world in in twenty years. Wow! Um, and it's all about in in a peace. It's all about." experiencing God within and wow. and it changes you personally okay. and, uh, you know, you're going to discover the reality of this and we sort of thought, yeah, okay. And I went home and told my dad because my dad, unlike my mother who was a nominal Presbyterian, we went to Sunday school as children up to about the age of 10 but when we got to that age we no longer had to go. And I don't actually remember having any great spiritual conversations with my mother, may have as a child, I can't remember that. But my dad, his main thing in life was seek the truth. Okay. And he was quite unusual. He wasn't your average beer-swilling tradesman. He was a, a very ethical, um, incredibly moral sort of non-believing guy. You know, he, he didn't have a religion per se. Mm. But if you asked him, do you love Jesus? Yes, I love Jesus. Do you love Buddha? Yeah, I love Buddha. He'd love them all. You know, anyone, okay. anyone who had some value to contribute, like I remember reading books like Carl Gabran, you know, the, the prophet sort of books. So he was supportive of you going into a hippie commune? Yeah, well, Dad, um, when I told my dad about this, his ears pricked up. 
he thought, that sounds interesting. And one thing that he later told me was that when he was a young man, he was really seeking the truth. That was his priority. When he got married, he said, actually, I, I need to put that on the second level now because now I've got to be dedicated to my uh, wife and my family. And um, so that's what he did. He prioritised that. But when my mother died, he suddenly had this priority number one again. And um, in that context, I came home saying, hey, Dad, this is Guru down the road who's uh, promised to change the world. And uh, for Dad and, and for people like myself, we didn't have a lot of faith in politics. We didn't have faith in um, religion per se. And I think that's what people perceived at that time, particularly in the 60s and early 70s, that institutional religion was effectively part of a, uh, a systematic institutionalization of life <laughs> and uh, a lack of community, uh, a lack of brotherly love, a lack of care, um, a destructive force more than anything. Basically a lack of authenticity. Yeah, a lack of authenticity, something that you could relate to mm. in terms of everyday experience and life and, yeah, and purpose right. and meaning, mm -hmm. which is what we both suddenly so what, needed. I've got to ask this. What was it like to be in a hippie commune, which was not yeah. just a hippie commune, it was had a religious yeah, yeah. guru at the head. That's right. What was it like from the inside? It it was a powerful experience. We used to go to meetings in um, in Melbourne, inner city Melbourne, and um, one of the characters from the band Daddy Cool was there. Um, there was a very, it was quite a cool vibe. There was a lot of people seeking and and trying to understand what what truth was about. In context of what was happening in the world, it seemed almost a logical thing that here's someone coming along telling us that what we need to do is change from the inside out. You can't change things from the outside in. Yep. And Christians would say the same. Which is true. And yeah. uh, it, there's a lot of truth in it mm. that appealed. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of brotherly affection mm -hmm. and, you know, what appeared to be love, a very mm. loving atmosphere. And you'd walk out of one of those meetings on a basically what you felt like a spiritual high. Great music, you know, people like Daddy Cool Bands. Yeah. That was the quality of the music. Uh, guitarists, people singing all these fantastic songs mm -hmm. um, and uh, very enthusiastic and passionate about it. So in a way more like what you'd expect of discipleship. Yeah. And you would hope church. Exactly. So um, my dad started coming along to these meetings, fell for it hook, line and sinker said, right, that's it, I'm going to give everything up for the guru. So he basically sold up all that he had and uh, we came to Tasmania with my wife, now parents, who were doing the same thing and we ended up coming down here to start what would be the equivalent of an evangelical community, which was the umbrella name for that organisation was called Divine Light Mission and Guru Marachi was the head. So... The community was started as a means by which people could get together, express their brotherly love, um, have what they called satsang, which means company of truth, which was basically like a church meeting together, but this was in a dome, in a paddock, <laughs> and uh, things were pretty free and exciting, and, you know, we were just sort of pioneering this experience on uh, a 400-acre block of land in the bush in Tasmania. And we came to Tassie 
the day after the bridge fell down, which I think was January 5th, wow. 1975. So we arrived on January 6th, hmm. 1975, and I'd finished high school. That's a date in history. Yeah. For Tassie. That's right. <laughs> and uh, we'd started living in this community. But I, unlike my dad, I didn't get initiated into this meditation system. And I can thank probably one significant teacher at school for for throwing a seed of doubt in there. A lady that I really respected, an uh, English teacher who would at the time get us to analyse the lyrics of things like uh, Deep Purple songs or, or Black Sabbath, um, War Pigs and all sorts of random stuff. So we were delving into that and she said to me, because I got excited about the guru and I said, hey, have you, you know, I wanted to tell someone about it. And uh, she said, oh, not another one. And that was pretty much all she said. Uh, and I was thought, well, no, it, it can't. It's not just another one, is it? You know. So I had this little, is it, question in my mind. Is it just another one? And I sort of held back a bit and started thinking about things. I can see why my dad went into it because he really wanted to see if this would work, if this would give him sense of meaning and purpose. Was this the truth that he was seeking? They claimed it was. So how long does this go on for? Before I think you were telling me previously that. A Christian, a born-again Christian, yeah, right. a genuine disciple yeah. of Jesus comes to live in the community. Yeah. How long? Well, he didn't actually come and live in the community, but he okay. he, he was a teacher at a local school right. uh, in Woodbridge and uh, my wife's brother went to the school and he got wind of the fact that there was this Divine Light Mission community emerged at Garden Island Creek. So he being, he was probably one of the most evangelical a true evangelist, you know, if, if someone's got a gift of evangelism, this guy was like your guerrilla evangelist. Uh, he had the right features, big black beard and big black bushy eyebrows and thin face and was with a dark sort of suit. And, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. <laughs> but, um, no, he, he came along and he was a great Bible scholar as well and uh, he had a sort of a checkered background himself and he'd come away from a sort of institutional church because some of the things he'd been involved with, he doubted that on the basis of the Bible. So he was he was the right person for a group of people that were already on the fringes of society, I guess, because he himself in a way was on the fringes of an institutional church life. Not that he was against it, but he was uh, just an individual sort of a character, lived in the bush himself, yep. you know, grew his own veggies, had a washing machine that you used a bicycle to power the belt on, you know, that sort of a character. And uh, as much as anything, he sort of lived this, anyone he'd pick up in a car, he'd, he'd talk to about Jesus straight away. You know, he'd pick up hitchhikers just so he could give them the gospel, basically. Anyway, he came along and uh, started saying things. He started having a discussion with my father-in-law and my dad. And my father-in-law and dad being sort of like pillars in the, that little community, um, felt that, oh, no worries, we'll soon enlighten this poor uh, blinkered Christian who's only got this very narrow view of, of life um, and we'll, you know, enlighten him because that's, I think, what the general idea was. You know, that, that's what most people think is that enlightenment is this broad perspective that you've got to open yourself up to this great plethora of ideas, whereas Christianity seems to be narrowing the ideas down. And uh, as well as that, in Divine Light Mission, they would say that Jesus was just another great master. In fact, they would have said that 
the guru was an incarnation of the Christ spirit and that Jesus was just an incarnation of the Christ spirit. So this Christ spirit is transferred. So Jesus of, is just one of yeah, many. Yeah, Jesus is just one of many perfect masters. So what convinced you then that Jesus was the guru, if I can put it like that? Yeah. Well, I think what challenged the the essence of that was Jeff was one of these guys that would say, well, just read this. He would always refer to what the Bible said. He would and, and get you to read it for he'd yourself. He'd get you to read it for yourself mm-hmm. and to say things like um, reincarnation, it's an obvious one, is uh, fundamental to the ideas within most Eastern religions. And then it is, Jeff would just open a text and say, read this, and it would say it's appointed for a man once to die and after that the judgment. And you think, well, that doesn't seem to fit with this syncretised view that Christianity supposedly just fits in and that, that Jesus was just revealing the light yep. to his disciples, which is part of the meditation technique, was light. Yep. And, that, and they, would, they would say, well, that's what Jesus was doing. When he said, I'm the light of this world, he was obviously revealing light as a meditation technique to his so you see the truth of the Bible, you see mm. how it's different theologically yep. and in worldview to Eastern religions. What in particular, though, made Jesus unique? Well, I think one thing was getting convinced that the Bible was reliable, uh, okay. that it was prophetically true. Yep. And Jeff was very good on prophecy, historical prophecies like out of Daniel, and making the Bible believable. It wasn't just a fairy tale book. Yep. This was actually a message from our maker to mm. the, the things that he'd made, the creatures that he'd made. Mm. This was the maker's handbook. So we were, that was part of the, the process of being convinced about that. And uh, the more we were convinced about that, the more we actually took notice of what the Bible was saying. And when it was opened up to us what the Bible did actually say, um, then it was very hard to ignore the very significant claims that Jesus made about himself. And... Uh, that was something that we had to deal with. So you got converted first, didn't you, before your father? Just before my father, yeah. Okay. Um, tell us a little bit about that process of then witnessing to your father and how he became a Christian. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, sort of a year went past more or less uh, when I first came to, to Tassie and I ended up living with my wife, who's now my wife now, but she wasn't then. We were just living together and we were living in a flat in Hobart. And I'd got to the point in my journey with Jeff and the Bible that I thought I'd better start reading this Bible for myself. And I was basically at home alone one day. I didn't have a a job at that time. Um, And Kim was out working in a cafe. And I opened up the Bible for the second time. I tried the Old Testament, couldn't get anywhere. Then I opened up the New Testament and started in at Matthew. And, (laughs) you know, it's one of those classic... uh, God spoke to me off the pages of the book moment because by the time I got to uh, Matthew chapter 6 or so, I was just absolutely overwhelmed with the the presence of God being my heavenly father. And, um, you know, especially the verses that talk about are you not worth more than the sparrows and the lilies of the field, consider these things. Won't your heavenly father provide for you? A bit like today <laughs> in this the funeral we've just been to, uh, there's someone watching over you. And uh, I had a distant sense that there was, you know, the universe was 
brings things to fruition in, in your life. There if, was some sort of intelligent sort of, yeah, designer, yeah. not even yeah. designer as in a watchmaker but presence that yeah. uh, or person. But then when you read about Jesus, you realise that there actually is a Father, Son, Holy Spirit yeah. that is personal and can be known. Yeah. I think that the overwhelming thing for me was not that I sensed, oh, now I know who Jesus is straight away. I right. sensed that I had a heavenly Father. Okay. That this was real. Mm. This was so real that I, I couldn't deny it. Okay. And um, I guess at, at that point I was, in, I was desperate. Mm. I was really wanting to, to know. Mm. Um, and I think that's almost a fundamental thing. You've got to want it. You've got to really want to know what the truth is, mm. the ultimate truth. What is the meaning and purpose for your existence? So I guess we could say theologically, if we yeah. were to use um, really specific terms, at that point you probably converted to theism, that yeah. there is a God, yeah. he can be known, he is personal. Yeah. But yet you were, when did you come to become a, when did you become a Christian that you were convinced of your sin and that Jesus was your yeah. saviour. I probably I probably understood the the message of that in principle. Mm. But I think the the sense of a conversion occurring, something happening within my spirit, yeah. was very profound when I read the Bible. Okay. So much so that I went to the phone booth because we didn't have mobile phones and I rang my dad and I said Dad, Dad was in Melbourne. I was in Hobart. Um, Dad, I don't know what's happened, but something extraordinary has happened to me, and I feel this thing. I, you know, it was a true a, divine light. Yeah, it was. A, it was a revelation. Yeah, and a, and I think for any Christian, yeah, truth is a revelation. Mm-hmm. It's something revealed to you. Yeah. Um, and Dad said, "That's great. That's really good. I'm really pleased to to hear that." Um, he at that time was in Melbourne. It was around Easter time, I think, and. Uh, Jeff was over there, this evangelist guy, oh, right. with my father-in-law. Yeah. And they were trying to thrash out the last vestiges of resistance my dad had to what the Bible's claims were and who Jesus was. And um, and two days later, my dad was on his knees and had a very similar experience to me hmm. and became a Christian at that time. I think for me the theology of uh, what had happened to me grew as I understood and mm-hmm. read more about the Bible. Yeah, right. You know, it's a bit like Paul on the road to Damascus. You suddenly okay. go, who are you, Lord? Mm. Oh, it's you. You're the one you I'm know. persecuting. Yeah. I, di- I didn't actually realise. Um, I remember driving in a car with this guy, Jeff, and and I had been listening to things he'd been saying about Christianity and the Bible, and I can't remember what I was saying, but I remember him turning around and saying, you're beginning to talk like a, a Christian. And I thought, you're kidding. I, that's the last thing on earth I imagined truth to be related to. I thought truth was something else. And because I saw Christianity and the institutional church as being an equivalent thing, whereas I didn't understand that this was actually a vital personal relationship you can have mm. with God through Jesus Christ. So how many years ago was that? How many years ago was that? Um, probably 19... 76, I think, yeah. So you're coming up to 50 years. Yeah, yeah. So you've almost been a Christian longer than you've been alive. Yeah, pretty much 19, <laughs> It's a joke. Yeah. It's a joke, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're more than halfway through life, you know. Yeah. Um, what do you, I mean, this is a very generic statement, and so forgive me if I'm just a little bit too pious here, but what do you think has been the difference that Jesus has made 
in your life, not just giving you salvation, mm. but as you look back on the last almost 50 years, yeah. what, what, what's the difference <laughs> Jesus has made? I think I'd, I'd have to say it the other way around, what difference hasn't he made? All right. You know, mm. um, because, <laughs> uh, you, you know, I'm a builder, so when, you, when you're standing on a dodgy foundation or when you see a structure <laughs> built on a dodgy foundation. It's a good analogy. It, it cracks. I think the, we look around the world, it's standing on a dodgy foundation. I mean, Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian philosopher and thinker, said modern man has both feet firmly planted in midair. Mm. I, that captured it for me. I think that's a, a great statement. Yeah, and wow. I think when you're a little planted in the universe floating around, you've got to ask yourself, what's this all about? You know, And unless you've got something much greater than all that, um, much more significant and permanent than all that. Yeah. You're not really going to have a, a, a direction outside of your own understanding. We need to have something revealed to us in order for us to know something that's permanent beyond this life and gives meaning and purpose to this life. Otherwise, fundamentally, it's a cosmic joke. Mm. You know, the world would tell us that, uh, you know, this was all ha happened by chance and nuts and bolts were thrown up in the air, you know, the atomic nuts and bolts, and it all just landed and here we are. Yeah, I, I know. I think it was Clive James that said, you know, the, the universe expresses such intelligent design that it, mm. it would be like a dictionary being blowing up. Yeah, uh, and turning into Shakespeare's play. Yeah. 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 yeah something like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so fill the story out a little bit. You've now been married. Yeah. Oh, gee, it'd have to be close to 50 years, wouldn't it? Yeah. Have you celebrated your 50th? Uh, not quite. No, okay. Getting there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and um, how many children, how many grandchildren? We've got five children and we've got the 18th grandchild coming along. Wow. In the oven now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Still loading. So, yeah, still loading. Yeah. yeah. So um, that's been a fantastic journey and I've had the joy of um, seeing my kids take on faith for themselves in a personal way and, and carry that mm. through. Um, it's, it's just been such a difference mm. that I can see in them. Mm. In some ways it's, I guess the danger now is that um, faith can be taken for granted, that you can live under the, the fruit and you can pluck the fruit from the tree of something that's drawing its sustenance from a, a source that you don't actually recognise. Well, that seems to be Francis Schaeffer again, really put his finger on this, isn't it, didn't he, um, where he said Western civilization, where, where it's like we're drawing all the fruit from the tree but we've yeah. cut down the tree. Yeah. It's dying yeah. because we, we've disconnected the fruit from the root. That's right. Which is Christ and, um, uh, and, all, and the person and work of Christ. Mm. Um, so here's a, if I can sort of bring this to a summary and if I can put this in an intense question way, mm. if you were to... Uh, leave a legacy of advice to your own children and grandchildren that granddad or pop, as they might refer to you, was, was um, that you wanted them to hear. Yeah. What would you say as a summary statement and mm. advice from your life that you'd want them to learn and heed? Yeah, it's, a, it's um, tricky. I, I, I think probably much like my dad said, seek the truth first, you know, um, when the Bible says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart 
and love thy neighbour as thyself, summarised version of that. Um, I think essentially that's saying the same thing. You know, we don't often, I don't think we often associate the idea of truth necessarily with an experience of God. But Jesus said, it's good that I'm going away, so I'll, I'll send you the Holy Spirit, even the spirit of truth, and he'll guide you into all truth. So truth is fundamental to the nature of God and to the nature of our experience. Unless we actually can get that, uh, then we're standing on a foundation of thin air. Yeah. And that, that's, you look around the world and the chaos and the, uh, the fragmentation, the variation of uh, moral values or lack thereof, it just is a, a constant reference to the fact that people aren't referring to something greater than themselves. They're looking to all sorts of spurious ideas and I, the whole idea of enlightenment from within, uh, you know, is fraught with danger. You know, we, we are very small little beings that need something much greater than ourselves to, uh, to guide us through life. And uh, I think I would want to encourage my children, my grandchildren, don't take life for granted Understand for yourself the significance and meaning and purpose of it before and primarily uh, as a number one thing in your life before you build your structures on top of that uh, because without that you'll be standing in midair and there's no doubt that life's experiences will crack your facade that they'll, even if it's on your deathbed, even if you sail through life happily running over the bridge with joy, waving a flag, you're still going to fall off the, the other side. You know, everyone's going to end up at the same point. Mm. Um, and you end up, you need to have something that's uh, foundational. Yeah, I think that analogy you make, particularly as a builder, mm. and I know you build very beautiful, bespoke buildings. Thank so, you. <laughs> you know, you have a reputation down here for oh, that. Um, the analogy of having a very good, found, a solid foundation is great because it's unseen, isn't it? Mm. Everybody in life builds, yeah. but we either build our house on, as Jesus would say, on the rock mm. or on the sand. That's right. Um, yeah. I've done quite a lot of property inspections mm. and many of the, the problems you see are foundational uh, as, as to what's happening in the superstructure of the, of the building. Um, you know, in a sense, it fulfills what the that passage out of uh, Daniel, yeah. you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. You know, that life teaches us that, I think. Yeah. If that, if you don't have a foundation that's strong, yeah. uh, you'll be weighed in the balances and mm. you'll be found wanting. Yeah. That's something that we found wanting in your life. You you won't have the, the basic structure there to support you through life's trials. It's a very good analogy because, you know, there is truth. There is a foundation and, uh, you know, you see it all throughout Hobart in particular. I know I've just been looking for a house mm. for the last four months um, and uh, you see lots of beautiful buildings with particularly beautiful outlooks Yeah, but they're crumbling mm. because of, like you say, a bad foundation and so much more. Mm. How much more so is that the case yeah. when we look at people's lives? Yeah. Everybody's got a life, got a perspective but that doesn't mean it's built on a solid foundation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, I, you know, life hasn't been always a, a breeze for me either since I've been a Christian. I mean, it's it's not Christianity isn't a guaranteed first class ride through life. It means that you've got a, you've got something that'll give you 
courage, give you strength. Uh, and, you know, Jesus mm. is there to carry you when your footsteps aren't in the sand anymore. You know, he's the one that will enable you, but he's also the one that carries you. <laughs> it, that's, a, it's a great, that's a great point because when you look at Jesus and particularly at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, he talks about the wise and foolish builder. Yeah. But everybody, both men build houses, mm. uh, one on the rock, one on the sand. And then the storms of life come to both. Just because you build your house on the rock doesn't mean you're sheltered from the storms of life. Exactly. It just means that your house will survive. Yeah. The storms will come and they'll batter mm. both of us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great, Ian. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's um, been a pleasure. Yeah, it's great to hear your story. Um, this has been another episode of AP's Profiles in Christian Living. I hope you've enjoyed um, this week's episode as we've considered a very different perspective and I hope you've been edified and encouraged by it and I look forward to seeing you next time.